to take out your Bibles and turn once again to the letter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians this morning, we're looking at chapters, or chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. I remind you that this is God's good and kind and gracious word that he has given to us and it is for us. And if anyone has a problem with it, take it up with God. These are challenging things that we are talking about. I confess this week there were various times where I said I don't want to preach this sermon. But I also confess that there were times this week when I got into fits of giggling because of the nature of the topic of this sermon. And so this should be a lot of fun. (laughs) This is God's good word. Let's give attention to it this morning. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. It might be better to say, I say this, as, or I say this, and then after this, so let me repeat this. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, and then you put some col- a colon there. I wish that all were as, my, were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. All right. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand his word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that your word touches all areas of life and shows us the glory of Christ and how we can glorify Christ in all areas of our life. I pray this morning that you would encourage us with this word, that you would convict us with this word, that you would exhort us, and that you would have us live our lives for the sake and glory of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So where can you find true happiness? I think that question is the root question behind every question that ultimately gets asked especially in the philosophical sphere. Philosophers are dealing with that question, where can you find true happiness? It's the question kind of behind the question. Now, every culture, every society, every group of people has an answer to that question, where can you find true happiness? In the ancient world, the Greeks had this particular idea that true happiness was found in national pride. For all the other things that the Greeks ultimately uh, said and wrote in their philosophies, they were all aiming at this ideal of national pride and the pride of the nation or the city-state. And so you see that come through in their philosophies, that your life is meant to be given over to 
the people that you're around and the nation that you live in. So that was one group. The Romans took that idea of, of happiness as found in the nation and they whittled it down and they said it's not necessarily national pride where you find true happiness, but it's pride in the family. And so, oddly enough, in Roman cultures, they were incredibly family-centric. The family meant everything. And especially for those who were citizens, there were probably only 1% of the population were citizens. They devoted themselves completely to their families. And everything was about the good of the family. So that was one idea. Well, flash forward to today in our society, where do you think people are finding true happiness? Where do you think people are looking for happiness? We are told in a, multiple, uh, in a multiplicity of ways and all over the place we're being bombarded with the message that true happiness comes in individual expression and doing whatever it is that you think you want to do at any given moment. And what you have to do is find the way that you can individually express yourself any way that you want to, without any boundaries, without anyone blocking the way that you feel, without anyone telling you you can't do that. You are meant to be finding your happiness in whatever it is that you want to do. Now, what's interesting about that is, remember, Paul is writing to Romans who, who have as their mindset that the family is the place where you find happiness. And he's also writing to us 2,000 years later, give or take, where we are saying it's not in the family where you find happiness, but it's in self-expression where you find happiness. But they were having the exact same problem. And the problem was one of sexual immorality. And you see that in a variety of ways in this passage. There is all sorts of dysfunction. There's all sorts of marital dysfunction, even though you would think that back then, because they were so focused on the family that they wouldn't have this kind of dysfunction, but that's not the case. So again, Paul wants to correct their faulty thinking. He's been talking about the way that they think for a couple of chapters now and how they need to be corrected in the way that they think. Now, they had different times, different definitions of happiness, different differences all over the place, but again, it was the same basic problem. And you need to remember that in this day, the people essentially thought that the physical things of the world were necessarily evil. And even physical desires were necessarily evil. They might be a necessary evil, but they were in and of themselves evil and bad. Well, today you see almost the exact, exact opposite thing where people would say, well, no, those physical desires that you have are necessarily good. And to deny or repress those desires is an evil thing in and of itself. Well, what we see in, in this world is that the attempt to express all of these desires, physical desires, in any way we see fit, leads to sexual immorality, sin, and all sorts of problems in our families, and our culture, all over the place. Well, the same thing was happening back then. That their desire to not express these things led to sexual immorality, marital dysfunction, and problems in their own communities. So it's mind-boggling to think this, but the same problem coming from two different directions. 
And so we need to give attention to this and pay attention to what Paul is saying in this passage. There's a couple of different ways that I want to look at this passage. First of all, I want you to see that as Paul writes, that intimacy, and I'm using that word euphemistically, that intimacy in marriage is a right. It is a right. But it's a wrong outside of marriage. Intimacy is a wrong outside of marriage. Secondly, we're going to see that intimacy in marriage is a protection of the marriage, but it is a danger outside of the marriage. And the third thing that we see is that intimacy in marriage is a gift from God, but outside of marriage, it is a curse from God. Okay? First thing, intimacy in marriage is a right And you see this in verses 1 through 4. What's going on here? Look at what's happening in verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So apparently the people in Corinth are writing letters to Paul asking him questions. But in this, you see, it's not necessarily a question they ask. But more than likely, what they're trying to do is they're trying to show Paul that they're being super spiritual, that they're being really, really wise in how they handle themselves and conduct themselves. And so they don't ask a question, they make a comment. And the comment is this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And you see why Paul puts this right here, because just, uh, you know, in the passage we saw a couple weeks ago, right above this, he's dealing with people that are involving themselves in sexual immorality by visiting the temples and visiting prostitutes. And so you would, you see why he's combining these things. He says, look, you're writing to me and you're saying, well, it's good for a man not to have these kinds of relations with a woman. And you would think that they're doing this in order to show just how holy they're being. But apparently, they are not being holy. How do you know this? Because of what he just had to write. He just had to tell them, stop visiting the temples. Stop visiting the prostitutes. They were not. In other words, their abstinence from this kind of intimacy was not creating morality. It was not creating good living. And that's kind of the point. Remember, they thought, you know, expressing these desires is a bad thing. And so they said, it's better for a man not to have these relations with a woman. And Paul kind of agrees with them. But look at what he says. Look at how he corrects their faulty thinking. What does he say? He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Here's something else that was going on in this world. The family and husbands and wives, uh, specifically, they did not marry each other largely because they wanted to get married to each other. They were arranged marriages, arranged by wealthy families, and you were put together with somebody that matched you. And so even though they were driven for the family, they wanted the family to do well, the person you were married to is not necessarily somebody you liked or cared for all that much. You put up with them for the good of the family, but you didn't necessarily like them or love them or even want to be married to them. And that created all sorts of problems because um, there's one writer who said, we keep wives to give us legitimate children, we keep girlfriends to give us a lot of fun, and we keep concubines in order to fulfill our desires. And so that's kind of the way that they understood the, the way that the marriage would work. Sure, you've got to have this marriage thing for the good of the family, but 
I don't really have to give myself over to the wife. And so that was basically the idea. Marriage is only for producing legitimate children. The Judeo-Christian idea, however, was not just that marriage was for the wealthy elite of the people, but it was for everyone. And actually, it was the essential thing that God used in order to bring redemption into the world. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. What did God use to bring about the redemption of the human race? It was a family, a man and a woman having children. The family is the basic building block that God uses to redeem the world. And so it's not just for the wealthy elite. It's not just for the 1% of the citizens of the Roman Empire. It was for everyone. It was for those who had been freed from slavery, who were not in slavery. It was for the wealthy, and it was also for those who were slaves. And so in Christian, Judeo-Christian, or in these Christian circles in the Christian church, all of these people are getting married, and it's a wonderful thing. Except that, they're bringing into their marriages all of these bad ideas about the evilness of the world. And so Paul's correcting that thing. And he says, you are being abstinent, but that abstinence is not creating holiness. And so what's the correction to it? It's not to say, don't be abstinent. He's saying, no, if you are married, don't be abstinent. That's what he says. There's proper abstinence. But it's improper to be abstinent in marriage because in marriage, intimacy is a right. Well, what is a right? A right is something that you own that cannot be taken away from you because of who you are, okay? That's what a right ultimately. It is something that is due to you because of who you are. And in, you know, think about the way that we view rights as American citizens. There's an analogy for our rights as Christian citizens. But as Americans, you know, think of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these, these truths to be self-evident that man is created by his God with certain unalienable rights, certain rights that cannot be taken away, that no government has the right to, to take away. And what are those rights? The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of, well, it used to be property because for them, they used to think that property equals happiness. But now they, they changed it and they said happiness. Let's take it and make it a generic term. In the pursuit of happiness. Those are your rights because you have been created by your God with these unalienable rights that cannot be taken away from you. They are yours by virtue of your being created in the image of God. Well, there are certain rights within the marriage covenant that cannot be invalidated, that cannot be taken away from you, and they are this in verse 4, uh, or in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Because this is a right in marriage. This is what you are giving yourself over to in marriage. Marriage, And he goes on to explain even more what it means. Look in verse 4. If it's, not, if it's not enough in verse 3, he really lays down the law in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If you are married this morning, your body is not yours alone. You do not have rights over your own body. 
but your spouse has the right to your body. This is the point. If you're married in Christ, your body is not your own. We saw that last week, that or two weeks ago, that, that there is not such a thing in Christianity of bodily autonomy. Your body is not your own. We saw two weeks ago that your body is owned by Christ. Now, everyone's body is owned by God because God has made us for himself. And there's no such thing as bodily autonomy. You cannot do what you want with your body because you do not own it. You do not sustain it. You do not keep yourself going. God does. God owns you. And now he comes back and he says, and if you're married, guess what? There's another person that owns you as well. You have given yourself up in marriage. If you're married, your spouse has autonomy over your body. It's an incredible thing that he says. Um, It's a hard thing that he says. There's all sorts of questions that begin to pop up. What does that mean? Whoa, 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 hold on. But, But this is my body. This is mine. I own it. Well, what's the application? How do we apply these things? Well, again, remember, your body first belongs to God, that God can tell you what to do with your body. And God does tell you what to do with your body throughout your word, the first, his word. The first thing you're to do is to worship God with your whole being. That is what you were made for. And in marriage, your body doesn't belong to you, but it belongs to your spouse. This is to correct your thinking. When you wake up in the morning and you have an ache or a pain in your body, you need to think to yourself, wow, that hurts. My body that belongs to my wife and my body and her body hurts. We are together. You don't think of yourself as separate. She may not feel that pain, and yet my body belongs to her, and it's her pain as well. Here's some other applications uh, in that correct your thinking, but what about this? What about specific application? You have been away, uh, husbands, you've been away from your wife for the entire day. And you come home, and she asks, what did you do today? And you say, not much, and you leave it at that. She said, well, where did you go? And you say, well, I went here and here and here and here. And you leave it at that. She asks some follow-up questions. But what did you do? And you say, well, I did this. And I did Would you, ah, just give me a minute. Okay. What you're saying to your wife in that moment is, you don't have the right to my body. You don't have the right to know where I was and what I was doing in those moments. And husbands, what I'm telling you is, your body is not your own. And when your wife is asking you those questions, it is your responsibility to answer those questions honestly and truthfully. And if you don't want to answer those questions honestly and truthfully to your wife, then there's a problem. And you were somewhere you should not have been. And you know it. Your body does not belong to you. It belongs to your wife. Well, wives, (laughs) what about... Your body. What about what about your body? You understand that your husband has the right to your body as well. This is not the right to be abusive. There's no right for abuse in marriage. There's no right to verbal, emotional, psychological, physical. Sexual abuse in marriage. That is not part of the conjugal right. But in marriage, wives, your body is not your own. It belongs to your husband. And it is for your benefit, as we'll see in a moment. 
Here's the reality. In marriage, the conjugal right is a right. And it is good for you. It is permitted, but it is not permitted outside of marriage because it is a danger outside of marriage. There's something mysteriously wonderful that happens in this kind of union, in the conjugal union. And it's so mysterious that God said, I'm going to save the world through it. It's hard to kind of wrap your mind around what that means. But if you are practicing this outside of the boundaries that God has set up, it is not permitted. God has said you need to not practice these things. And that's what's going on in this church. They're saying it's good for us not to have sexual relations with our wife, but they're going to the temples, they're going to the prostitutes. And Paul says, no, in marriage this is good. All right, that's the first thing you see. Intimacy in marriage is a right, but a wrong outside of marriage. Second thing that you see in verse 5 is that intimacy in marriage is a protection. It's a protection. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. Now, there is a rule in marriage that the husband has conjugal rights to his wife and his wife has conjugal rights to her husband. That's the rule. But he begins to lay out exceptions to the rule. There are always exceptions to every rule that you need to follow, that you need to be aware of. There are exceptions. And there are some married people who are married in Christ who are providentially hindered from practicing sexual intimacy. That is the exception, however. That is not the rule. And he says there is a very good reason not to deprive one another in marriage. What is that reason? Well, specifically, look in verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And he says, do this, but come together again in verse 5 so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's a good reason that denying intimacy apparently... Denying intimacy, depriving one another of this intimacy in marriage opens the door for Satan to enter into your marriage. It opens the door for temptation. It opens the door for temptation to lead to sexual immorality. So when you deny your spouse and deprive your spouse, you're not just depriving his or her desire, but you're actually opening your family up for Satan to attack it. And again... This is important because your marriage is not the byproduct of your psychological need to be wanted, to be appreciated, to be loved. That's not why you are married. That's one of the great byproducts is that sometimes, yes, you do feel appreciated and loved. But you are married because God has said, this is the thing. Your marriage is the thing that I'm going to use to fight Satan in this world. And if you're depriving one another of intimacy, then you are saying that I don't care about the thing that God has given to fight Satan in this world. And guess what? Satan is going to attack your marriage at that point and will attempt to destroy your marriage, the very thing that God is using to destroy him. That's why this is such a big deal. Your marriage and intimacy in marriage is not just about you, but it's about the well-being of the church, about all of God's people, 
about the kingdom of God coming into this world. It is a very important thing. It's not the most important thing, but it is an important thing. You need to understand that your marriage is God's weapon to bring war into this world against the kingdom of Satan. Again, not his only weapon, but it is one of the weapons that God uses to transform this world. And so if you are saying that this aspect, this part, the conjugal part of my marriage is not a part that I'm going to be obedient to God in, then you're saying, well, I don't care what God says. I don't care what God thinks about my marriage. And I don't think that God is really going to transform the world through this thing that he says he's going to transform the world through. And it's, it's just this incredible thing that, that, uh, that, that Paul says, you know, temptation to sin in this area, um, it creates, it's this chink in the armor. And it's this thing that, that he says you need to, you don't need to withhold for this sake. And you say, well, well, it's not my responsibility that my husband doesn't have any self-control. I'm not causing him to sin by depriving. Well, it's not what God's word says. So, um, it's not, again, your responsibility to keep him from sinning. But do you care about your brother in Christ? Do you care about your wife in Christ? Do you care about each other? Um, now, remember something. This is where things get so backwards from our day. It was in this day that men were withholding themselves from their wives. In our day, that's not the typical thing that you see in marriages. Not that it never happens. But in our day, uh, it's usually the wives that are depriving the husbands. And Paul says you need to be careful. There are some exceptions. There are some ways that you govern this. Should you deprive one another? He says yes. How should you do it? There's two ways. He says, you need to have, do it by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. If you are depriving, if you are being deprived of the conjugal rights in marriage, then it needs to be handled in this way. It needs to be agreed upon by both spouses, which means you have to talk about it. And you have to say, hey, I think we need to not have that for a time in our marriage. And while that's agreed upon, and, and then whenever you stop, it needs to be agreed that this is when we'll stop and this is when we're going to start back. It needs to be agreed upon. It doesn't need to be this indetermined time where you're just withholding. And if you are, there's a problem that you need to address. There's always a problem that needs to be addressed in this. But there's a problem. You need to talk about it with each other. And the way that the language that he uses here is, you know, by agreement for a limited time, why? That you may devote yourself to prayer. Essentially, what he's talking about is a fast. This is just like a fast from food, where the reason why you fast from food is in order to focus on the Lord more, to devote yourself to the Lord. You fast as a way to focus on the Lord. And so when you feel the hunger pains from fasting, fasting from, uh, from food, what do you do? You pray. You pray to God. You pray asking for things, telling him things. You pray to God, devoting yourself to the Lord. And that's all Paul is suggesting here is that as you are agreeing about the long and the, the, the time that you're going to not have the conjugal rights in marriage, that during those times, what do you need to be doing? You need to be praying, praying for your spouse, 
praying for yourself, praying for your marriage, praying for the things that God needs to do in your midst. These are the rules. Again, if you don't like them, don't email me or text me or talk to God about it. This is clear, this is clear stuff. This is so easy. All right? What's the application? What about, uh, what about blah, blah, blah? What about this? What about this? Now, again, this is not a justification for abuse in marriage. Um, this is justification for thinking about your spouse, for considering your spouse. Because conjugal relations are a way to beat Satan. Think of, uh, just for a moment, conjugal relations in marriage is a way for you to fight Satan. And it is a very fun way for you to fight Satan. So go fight Satan, guys. Okay? See the nervous giggling that comes out of that? But outside of marriage, here's the thing. What are you doing? You're not fighting Satan. You're opening the door for Satan to attack more and more and more and more. And you're opening the door for chaos to come into your life. In marriage, it's a protection. It's a wonderful thing. Outside of marriage, it creates chaos and it creates danger. Okay, last thing. Intimacy in marriage is a gift, but it's a curse outside of marriage. And you see this in verses 6 and 7. Um, this is one of those weird statements that, uh, that Paul makes. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. And again, it should be a colon. He's pointing forward to what he's saying. I wish that all were as myself am. What was Paul? He was single. He was not married. That means that marriage is not the end-all, be-all of every individual in the church. That's not the way that Southerners tend to treat young single women. They tend to ask young single women, when are you get married? When are you get married? When are you get married? Oh, when are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? As if marriage is the end all, be all. And Paul says here is, no, I wish everyone was single like me. We need to realize that. Married, single, both of them fit into the plan of God. That's the way it is. Singleness is just as much a part of the plan of God. And if God has given singleness to an individual, that is a wonderful gift that he has given to that individual. So if you are single, praise the Lord. That's God's gift to you. That is for those who have been married in the past and you are not married at this moment for a variety of reasons. If you're in Christ, that is a gift. As hard as that is to hear, it is a gift. For those who have never been married, it is a gift from God. From those who maybe have not reached the age of getting married yet, your singleness today is a gift from God. Don't squander that gift. It's a gift from God. Not everyone's going to get married. And if you want examples of that again, you see Paul and see Jesus. Okay? Singleness is a wonderful thing from the Lord. But if singleness is a gift from the Lord, guess what? Marriage is also a gift from the Lord. God gives marriage to his people as a gift to be enjoyed. I remember when I was a hospice chaplain, I had to go into some of the scariest places in Jackson, Mississippi, and the surrounding areas. I have stories that would make you just get you sick to the stomach about the things that I've seen, about the, the depravity that I've seen because of the, the places that I had to go into. It would break your heart to know some of the circumstances that people live their lives in. 
And I, as a 27, 28-year-old who would enter into these places alone by myself, it was terrifying. I did not like it. I wanted to run in the opposite direction. I worked for this hospice company for about nine months. And then they, we grew to uh, this place where they, they allowed us to hire uh, a position called a bereavement counselor. I said, well, who, who's this bereavement counselor? Who can it be? And they said, well, we just need somebody who's got some skills in counseling, who's got some certification. And I thought to myself, oh, my friend, Sean Furness, he's at seminary with me. He's got certification in counseling. I wonder if he could come and work with me as a bereavement counselor. And guess what? They hired Sean Furness to be the bereavement counselor. And guess what he did? He rode with me to these places so that when I had to walk through hospitals, when I had to go sit down with people and tell them that they were dying, when I had to go into some of the scariest homes all throughout Jackson, Mississippi and sit with people in all kinds of different stations of life, Sean Furness was there with me. And it wasn't quite as scary. I think that's the picture because this, this life is so hard. There are a lot of scary, dark places that we have to walk into. There are a lot of places where God is asking us to walk where if we were alone, we would not do it. Some of you have to walk in that alone. And again, you have the strength to do that by God's gift. But some of us don't. And guess what? I don't. I am weak. I am scared. And Amy knows it. And she is a gift to me to help me walk through these scary, dark places. Marriage gives you someone to walk through with. Because I am a scaredy cat. I need someone to walk with me. (laughs) Tiger knows. And if you are married this morning, your marriage is a gift, and intimacy in marriage is a gift. Now what happens, you know, those of you who have had children, what happens... When your children squander the gifts that you've given them, when they don't appreciate those gifts, what do you like? What do you like when you see your, your kids destroy their toys hours after they get them on Christmas? <laughs> and they don't appreciate them. Think about God in heaven who says, look, married people, I've given you this gift. This beautiful, wonderful gift that was God's plan. He didn't look at Adam and Eve in the garden and say, stop doing that. That's what's his point. (laughs) And he says, why are you not enjoying this gift that I've given you? Are you squandering the gift that God has given you if you're married? Now, uh, again, if you're not married this morning, that gift is not yours. It's not yours yet. Maybe it won't ever be yours. But you have been given everything that you need in God. And that is just as much a gift So by application, here is my point of application. Married people, go home and enjoy the gift that God has given. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message. I pray, Lord, that you would use it for your sake and for your glory. I pray that our marriages would be for your glory. I pray that our singles here would see their singleness as a gift. I pray, Lord, that through all of it, you would be glorified and magnified I pray that we would not give any advantage to Satan in our marriages, in our lives, that we would fight him with all the things, that all the tools and weapons that you've given us to fight him, that the kingdom of God may not stand against the church and that we may march forth 
as your people, fully confident of Jesus Christ. We again thank you for this message. We thank you for your life-giving word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.